0: Okay, now, you know, David, we're surrounded by soup. And I'm not talking about Campbell's, I'm not talking about air pollution, but about various forms of radio waves. You know, we all have these Wi Fi hotspots, we have our own wireless internet connections, we have cell phones, we have portable phones. I mean, we have so much soup here, you wonder whether people can remain sane. It's an electromagnetic nightmare. That's right. And and you sometimes wonder whether that's why they sell so many sleeping pills these days, because people can't (laughs) sleep. Their heads are so filled with this stuff that at a subconscious level, they can't concentrate anymore.
1: It's entirely possible, Gene. Has there been
0: any real studies along these lines? I wonder. Well, I don't know if there would be, because it would put a lot of companies out of business if the answers weren't what they expected. Yeah. In any case, on the show, we've got somebody here who's going to talk about the pulses that surround us
1: and mm. how they could be used for mind control. <laughs> okay, so basically, you'll want to go and watch this movie and buy these soft drinks and uh, watch these television shows because your mind is being controlled. Or vote for this particular person. Uh-huh. And this is separate from the simple mesmerization and mind control techniques uh, that are deployed by television broadcasts.
0: Absolutely. And we'll hear more about mm-hmm. that with Dr. Nick. Baggage. Coming up next on the
2: Paracast.
3: I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
2: She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack Attack of the Rockoids. Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack Attack of the Rockoids. Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com That's www.rockoids.com Attack Attack of the Rockoids. Rockoids in the grand Science fiction tradition.
4: We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
0: So, Nick, to start things off, you've got this book out there called Controlling the Human Mind, subtitled The Technologies of Political Control or Tools for Peak Performance. Now, what kind of mind control are we talking about here?
3: Well, you
5: know, the technologies have evolved, you know, quite a bit over the years. I mean, it started with um, the things that everyone's pretty much aware of these days, the ideas of hypnosis, and, um, and then later uh, was was uh, introduction of chemical means for Uh, altering people's behavior, but the most important areas deal with electromagnetic fields or oscillating fields that actually create what's called a frequency following response where the brain actually um, is altered uh, quite dramatically just by um, oscillating fields.
0: Uh-oh. Now, is this something that could be used for some pretty nefarious purposes then?
5: Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, when you look at the research, and we, and we put together over 300 source documents in compiling this book, and when you look at the research, for instance, from Persinger at Laurentian University, one of his ideas was um, on a global scale, you know, was the idea that you could oscillate the magnetic field lines of the Earth or the cavity of the Earth uh, the resonant cavity of the earth can actually carry signals that would change people's emotional states or uh general sense of well-being, which is, you know, that's a pretty extreme thing. And, you know, on, low, on even a more uh, controlled or uh, narrow level, there was a gentleman, uh, Woody Norris, last year. He won the MIT Lemelson Prize for what's called microwave heterodyning, which is the idea of using a couple of microwave beams targeting say an individual at a, at a pretty great distance and you can create an interaction between two microwaves that uh, literally transfer sound just like uh, carrying a, um, a radio signal uh, that can be trans- translated by a radio into uh, uh, the voice that you hear right now. Uh, the same can be done with uh, microwaves and this was again a half a million dollar prize from MIT for the guy that did it.
1: But assuming that you've got these uh, this microwave system for affecting behavior, how do you specifically target the physiology of the brain to do that given what we do and don't know about the brain? Is there is there enough knowledge at this point to understand how to apply electrical interference patterns to a brain to evoke a specific type of response?
5: Absolutely. In fact, um, even on a synthetic basis, the hippocampus in uh, primates have been completely replicated on a microcircuit where all of those functions have been stored and available um, through neurocircuitry. Uh, to actually manipulate um, uh, brain function, you know, as an example. You know, what, what's happening is the ability of uh, modeling the brain, and, and a lot's going on there. At an emotional level, it's pretty easy to affect. I mean, right now with technologies that exist and what the military and more recent literature refers to as controlled effects. In fact, in June 2004's issue of Horizons put out by the uh, Air Force um, Research uh, uh, Research Group. There's a article by their electromagnetic director talking about controlled effects for replicating uh, even all of the senses like taste, smell, touch, uh, visual and auditory to create uh, complete visual hallucinations. I mean, the idea of the technology being advanced is has been in the literature for quite some time. The technologies to do it are, are actually evolving pretty rapidly on that kind of a scale. I looked at um, a paper produced by uh, a physicist, uh, Elizabeth Raucher, uh, some time ago that actually showed as far back as 1985 having the ability to create visual and auditory images using essentially uh, oscillating fields of a very specific type um, that understand uh, how to connect uh, to those same uh, types of energies within the brain. When you look at the supercomputers now, there's three of them being configured uh, in Switzerland. These are the big ones, uh, the big IBM supercomputers, and they run about, I think the record now is 280 teraflops a second. Now that's equal to the equivalent of 6.6 billion people on the planet with hand calculators uh, for 60 hours doing a calculation every five seconds. So I mean a huge amount of computing power. They're networking three of these together for full three-dimensional visual imaging of brain function. And when we get it that fine, then we're gonna be able to do um, exactly what the military is predicting. Which is what? Well, the idea of being able to uh, actual transfer information uh, just as easily as it comes to the optic nerve of the eye, for instance, to get a visual image, being able to do that artificially or being able to replicate sound in the same manner Uh, bypassing the eighth cranial nerve that which carries auditory information to the brain, or affecting taste, smell, touch, uh, those kinds of sensations, by essentially uh, using a signal that overrides the natural signal that carries those normal communications into the appropriate parts of the brain for interpretation. I mean, it's really as simple as that. It's understanding enough about those energy transfers to replicate them and that's what science has been going for quite some time.
0: You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Nick Bigich. He is author of a number of works including the one we're talking about, Controlling the Human Mind, the Technologies of Political Control for Tools for Peak Performance. Isn't mind control something that politicians and governments have been trying to do for years and years? Uh,
5: absolutely and in fact um, the, uh, the subtitle, uh, Technologies of Political Control, actually comes right out of the literature from the European Parliament, because they talk about uh, not just this type of technology, but we actually uh, were able to get a resolution. We demonstrated what's called an infrasound device, which is a device that transfers sound information directly into the brain uh, in a way that bypassed uh, the eighth cranial nerve. We did that back in 1998, and as a result, in a re- resolution on security disarmament, to about that resolution number as we're uh, talking about it. They actually put in a section, and that section dealt with this issue squarely. It's the first time that we've been able to see a political body actually put language in, and this is what it's what it actually says. It calls for an international convention, including a global ban on all developments and deployments of weapons which might enable any form of manipulation of human beings, unquote. And that comes from the European uh, Parliament's resolution, A4-Z. Uh, 0005 forward slash 99, and that's from January 28, 99, and it was based on testimony we gave February 5, 1998, and that was given in the Committee on Foreign Affairs and Security and Defense Policy, their subcommittee on security and disarmament. The three sections of that same resolution above that deal with the HARP issue, but we expanded it to really get into this issue and demonstrate it sufficiently by uh, unclassified documents and academic studies as well as a working model. Why this technology should be restricted? You know, that's now what eight years ago, and, and you know this science hasn't slowed; it's advanced extraordinarily rapidly. Uh, and now, from my perspective at least, represents perhaps one of the most invasive technologies we've ever developed. Oh boy!
1: Now, uh, Nick, you just mentioned the uh, the Heart Project, which is the uh, High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program, something that the Pentagon and the military's been working on for for a while now. Right. Um, How are you tying this into this topic?
5: Well, actually, we did in the very beginning. You know, the book um, Gene Manning and I wrote, Angels Don't Play This Harp, was, um, in fact, probably the biggest issue-oriented document ever built on the subject. At that time, we said, and and we say it today, that using HARP, because HARP literally can oscillate the entire geomagnetic field of the planet, you could, in fact, carry what Persinger suggested you could carry out. The idea of oscillating the magnetic field lines or the uh, electrical cavity or broadcast cavity of the Earth between the ionosphere and the Earth is something he has written papers on. Going back even further, J.F. Gordon McDonald, who was a geophysicist and he was a science advisor to Lyndon Johnson, geophysicist at UCLA in a book called Unless Peace Comes, there's a chapter that he wrote uh, where he describes the idea of again oscillating uh, the magnetic fields of the Earth for influencing behavior over a geographic areas. Back in 69, when J.F. Gordon MacDonald did his writing, no such system existed. Not until PARP was developed did you actually have a system that could carry that kind of a complex signal and rebroadcast it in, in, in the appropriate form.
1: Now, do we know enough about how our atmosphere works and the um, complex dynamics of it to be able to deploy something like this with an actual useful degree of control?
5: Um, well, you know, actually, the, the answer is yes. In fact, um, you know, what they did in Tromsø, Norway, back um, in the mid-90s, is demonstrating a, a much uh, cruder instrument in terms of design and significantly less powerful um, at Tromsø at that time than what what Harp is today, and what they were able to do is play Wagner, get the ionosphere to vibrate to Wagner, you know, which is, <laughs> it's know, like an Aryan star, dream, oh my god, you know, but I mean, they were able to create that <laughs> kind of an oscillation pattern, now I know um, the work of the inventor, Dr. Eastland, you know, we've continued to dialogue over the years, and he's done additional work for uh, the European Space Agency, for NASA, for FEMA, on the heart type transmission systems and then more recently a paper uh, that he delivered to uh, University of Pennsylvania last year. But but the things that are, that are really being understood is that these systems are in fact much more complex, but the idea of using uh, any en- energy carrier to oscillate or carry a signal is just the basic physics of it. Now coupling that to the body has been subject of a lot of research. If you look at the radio frequency dosimetry handbook with big, big long name, but what it is is radio frequency dosages essentially that will override the various organs of the body that was produced by the University of Utah for the Air Force back in 1985. That's sort of one of the steps along the way to developing uh, these technologies, which would eventually be deployed. And, and then you get other things that come out of, you know, the, what's learned. I mean, this big uh, piece of equipment now, it's a Humvee with a, a dish on the top for creating heat sensations on the skin. And we've all seen it by now in the in the mainstream media. They keep running the same press release every year for the last six years. What they don't tell you about this device uh, that's really important is if you, uh, if you change the – and you can do this with software, like flipping a switch, literally, um, if, if you change the waveform pulse rate or any other uh, number of perimeters uh, in terms of, of of what signal you're generating through that dish, you can have much different effects than heat on the skin.
3: We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums, where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gina and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
0: Hey, before we are inundated by different electronic pulses, let me tell everybody you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Nick Bigich, and he's author of a number of works, and the one we're talking about is Controlling the Human Mind, the Technologies of Political Control, or Tools for Peak Performance. Now, this day and age, Nick, we're inundated with a lot of soup. We'll call it electronic soup. Absolutely. There's so much of this stuff going on, and it's really, really difficult to know (laughs) what (laughs) might be harming us, what might not. We talk about cell phones that might be generating electronic garbage to hurt our minds. We have these wireless Internet connections that are just ubiquitous all over the place. So right now, are we in serious danger from just the technologies we have, be forgetting the sneaky. Things that governments yeah. might want to do.
5: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, in, the, in, the, in our earlier work, Earth Rising Two, we dealt with the cell phone issues and underwater sonars. Again, expressions of energy within the environment and what they're doing, and you know, using the best in, in the sciences. I mean, our, our work is known for uh, the scientific footnoting because we bring in the experts in the various fields. And what we know is, as an example, radio frequency energy alone, um, there is 200 million times more of it surrounding us at this moment than it just over a little over a hundred years ago when radio was first being introduced in terms of the background uh, radio frequency energy. Now what is and then you add in all the other uh, parts of the spectrum that generate energy electromagnetic fields and various kinds of energy uh, sources in all the interference patterns uh, that are derived from them and here's what, here's what I can say is when the power goes out no matter where you live in the world when the power goes out the first thing you notice how quiet it is and the second thing you notice is how your whole body almost does a big exhale like it all, all of a sudden it relaxes like it contracts and the reason being is we are under a constant state of stress because of these external fields until they're shut off when we notice the difference if you look at the electromagnetic exposure guidelines from the former soviet union when the iron curtain fell they were one thousand times more stringent there been in the West. And the reason they were is because of the biological effects that were acknowledged. I mean, they, maybe they didn't enforce the regulations, but they at least acknowledged the biological effects. And electrophysiology and the science of biophysics had already told um, all of our scientists where, where the real answers were in terms of exposures. Problem is in the, in the West, much of this knowledge has been used to develop weapons technologies to exploit it, as opposed to healing technologies uh, to exploit it, perhaps, a different uh, a different way, and maybe a more productive way. And that's, I mean, that's the tension between the, te- the technology is that these technologies, um, all of them, when they're based on energy interactions and the biophysics, the biophysics is telling us one thing, but it's not meshing um, into the mainstream health sciences as rapidly as it probably should, and there's a lot of reasons for that.
1: So Nick, you're talking about the military using this, not so much as a weapon against our quote-unquote enemies, but as a form of population control?
5: Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I mean, what I would say is is that, you know, when you look at this government, whether it's liberal or conservative, uh, you know, the temptation to use technology to further their political ends. And I'm not just, it's just not me saying that. You can go back to the work of uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski. He wrote a book called Between Two Ages, and he talked about. Uh, this concept of controlling the human mind. And what he said in in his book called uh, The Subtitle America's Role in the Technotronic Era and he suggested that the temptation to use this type of technology, whether conservative or liberal, to further their own political ends would would be and would would literally drive them to do it if they thought they could get away with it. And that's, once again, you know, the technology um, that we're describing uh, is, is based upon a lot of evidence that's been brought forward through government institutions and academic studies that now necessitate even the even the economists uh, in 2002 uh, May 25th issue their cover story was on mind control and it was because of the ethics of that issue uh, that the economist was concerned when you read their article and now I can say that you know at this time uh, to not see full disclosure of these technologies and their limit uh, the idea of interfering with people's free will is the essence of what these technologies represent. And, and theirs, when you talk about uh, technologies of political control, uh, when you get to the heart of it, that's where Europeans get very excited because in their living memory, they know what that's like. Uh, we maybe have forgotten that in the United States, but it's only because it's been sliced away from us a slice of time. And, and you know, this is perhaps uh, the most invasive technology, all.
1: Now, listening to what you were just saying, Nick, I mean, some of our listeners are probably thinking, well, gee, between fast food and the ubiquitous thing we call television, seems like that would be mind control enough. Uh,
3: Well, you know, even
5: television, I mean, think about it. People say, hey, it's safe. There's no physiological effect if you sit back 10, 12 feet but if you think back to the late 90s again a cartoon playing in Japan with a flicker rate in the right frequency mm-hmm. following response range for epileptic seizures sent 700 kids to the hospital right. now you know, that's considered non-ionizing harmless radiation, but it's the pulse rate, the flicker rate, the oscillation itself that carries the information that tells the brain to have a chemical reaction. Now, you can do the same thing to trigger emotional chemical reactions if you know essentially the frequency code for that receiver uh, within the brain to understand the signal. And it's the same as a radio dialing through the station. It's all static until you get resonance, harmony between the transmitter and receiver, and voila, right. everyone hears the voice. Human beings, whether it's on the elemental level, and atomic level, read the physics. This is the way the physics works. Energy transfers take place between all, all material objects at some level, and if you can uh, understand those codes, then you understand um, a lot about the structure uh, of those things and the ability to influence that structure or influence those transfers of energy. And that's essentially where the exciting part is, is the more you know in this area, uh, the more capable we are of rebalancing our systems to get rid of those kinds of chronic disorders uh, where energy medicine used in a much different way than uh, energy being used to essentially shut down systems. You know, so there's, big, there's There's a lot going on. I mean, if you look at energy medicine and you see what's happening in some parts of the world and what's been happening for some time because of the integration of biophysics, uh, not for strictly military purposes, but also for health science.
0: This is just getting, getting crazy and crazy, I'll tell you. Fate magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits
3: you've entered another dimension you've entered the paracast Is there
0: anything good? We're talking so much about, I guess we'll call the paranoid aspects of mind control. And from any of the have you pursued that in the moment? Let me tell our listeners during the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Nick Begich, and amongst his pursuits is a book called Controlling the Human Mind: The Technologies of Political Control or Tools for Peak Performance, and we're going to focus on that. By the way, his website is earthpulse.com. And we have a direct link from our site, thepowercast.com. Just a reminder, if you want to get a hold of us here at the PowerCast, send your email to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. We also invite you to visit our online forums. Go to thepowercast.com and click on the links to our message forums we welcome you aboard. Okay, Nick, what about the tools for peak performance, the good stuff that could come out of
1: this?
5: Well, and, and a lot of it is, is starting to. You know, the, the fact of the matter is the more we learn um, about these things, the more apt we are to develop really good technologies. A couple of them that have happened, sort of spun out uh, from some of this research, is biofeedback. And one area in particular uh, interest in biofeedback is neuro or brain biofeedback, and they're using it for uh, now stroke recovery to kind of rewire the brain, they're using it for alcoholics and uh, drug addicts with great success. They're having incredible success with kids that have been previously treated uh, with redolent for things like attention deficit disorders. Um, And and what they're finding is, uh, and it's very simple, I mean essentially they hook up a child to an EEG that monitors brain function, they look at a television screen that maybe has a bouncing ball or a guy running a race and by learning how to manipulate their own brain activity they make the ball go higher or the guy win it, win that race and it's when their brain activity is within that perfect zone for accelerated learning. Now, the, the fact of the matter is you can you can literally get into a situation where children can learn in a very short period of time thirty to forty one hour sessions um, spread over a couple of months how to model moderate their own brain activity more effectively in, in some cases than you or I, and we're starting to see this integrated um, already in 40 school districts around the country, which out of 15,000, it's a, got a long way to go, um, but the idea is that the technology is out there that can do some pretty remarkable things. On the other side uh, of the world, a good friend of mine, she has a um, she's, she's actually my mentor's daughter, she did her does her work in electrophysiology. Her dad was was very well known and developed electro electrolaser acupuncture Uh, that has actually trained 15 clinicians in Finland and his daughter now operates a school there. And they've used it effectively for things like diabetes. They've dealt with um, a number of uh, uh, chronic health conditions from MS diabetes. Certain forms of cancer um, have successfully been treated. Uh, with this with this method and it's been challenged in Finland by the medical authorities all the way to the supreme court and my my mentor did win, uh, which is why there's a, a school of Uh, this method of acupuncture in the middle of Helsinki and you know there's a lot going on and in that area what she also found is specific resonant frequencies um, for specific viral uh, forms and bacterial forms allows you to selectively destroy them because it's it's once again like dialing to that station and as long as Those same resonant frequencies don't interfere with um, your your other uh, components of the body. You can zero right in on certain things. And this is where the science gets very, very exciting.
0: Isn't that the double-edged sword about all these technologies, though, that one area they can be used for just the most incredible wonderful achievements to improve your life and then they could use as instruments of terror and I'm wondering here we're fighting right now a terrorism threat around the world and are any of these terrorists instead of blowing up things and using human bombs and all that stuff roadside bombs and all this crazy stuff any of them trying to use mind control to gain an upper hand?
5: Well you know actually the problem is uh, the technology's not that complex. I mean, it's relatively flat and getting flatter all the time. And, you know, at this point, I I don't know that that's the case. But, you know, that comes as, uh, when you look at the government's own research and papers on weapons of mass destruction, I'll go back to 1997, uh, pre-9-11. In 1997, there was a a conference at the uh, George uh, Mahler Auditorium for the University of Georgia and it was, I believe, April 27. And what what was going on there was an international discussion by Lugar, senator Lugers and Nunn, and uh, Secretary of Defense Cohen on weapons of mass destruction international terrorism and he suggested then that terrorist states might have technologies uh, that would that would actually trigger uh, geophysical events and I'll give you the quote it says others are engaging even in an eco type of terrorism whereby they can alter climate set up earthquakes and volcanoes remotely through the use of electromagnetic waves and that was um, it's actually April twenty eighth. 1997, when that uh, statement was made by Secretary of Defense Cohen. And when you think about terrorist states having that kind of sophistication, what we're talking about here is, again, an understanding of how to manipulate electromagnetic waves and capitalize on certain resonances. In this case, what they're talking about is manipulating geophysical systems, things within the Earth. What we're talking about today is manipulating things within our biological systems, things within the body. But it's the same basic underlying understanding of manipulating resonant energies for very specific chemical reactions or very specific effects that the brain will understand and interpret in certain ways.
1: So when you said that something occurred to me, Nick, that I'm sure there are listeners of ours who are thinking at this moment, well, if, for example, our military and our government had the ability of doing this, couldn't they have used a technology like that to avert the Katrina disaster?
5: Well, you know, there's some discussion about that. That, I would suggest people take a look at what the European Space Agency has published in this area and what others have published in that area. And uh, I don't think the systems are quite big enough to divert um, a Katrina, but, you know, that technology um, has been developed, is being developed, and to what state it actually is at right now in the public literature uh, wouldn't take me quite that far. But there are some things happening. There was a paper done at the University of Pennsylvania that was um, accepted that shows that with systems using 1600 times less energy than HARP would create, you could manipulate weather systems by manipulating what are called gravitational waves or acoustic waves. Uh, which are these very long uh, wavelengths that can be manipulated much differently. But, you know, going back to, you know, even the idea of uh, psychotronic weapons or uh, psychic driving or driving mental states, there was a paper called uh, The Mind Has No Firewalls, and it was produced by the U.S. Army War College and published in 1998 in their publication, Perimeters. And this is what it says. It says a psychotronic generator which produces a powerful electromagnetic emanation capable of being sent through telephone lines, TV, radio, network, supply pipes, and incandescent lamps. The signal would manipulate the behavior of those in contact with the signal unquote. In other words, any uh, electromagnetic carrier uh, they can embed a signal uh, that can override certain functions within our human physiology if we're within a reasonable proximity of that signal, either through the optic nerve through the flickering of light or through uh, things that can be carried in that way or through auditory, even sub-auditory where the sound is coming through but you're not necessarily even perceiving it. You know, Or even the oscillations within the electromagnetic fields that surround us with within uh, within the power grid that we're immersed in. So when you start to look at all of that, you gotta go, wait a minute, you know, and then you look at stress-related illness and epidemic proportions in urbanized societies, whether it be cancer-related or stress-related, or mm-hmm. all of the various manifestations of stress that we see within our culture is driven by lots of these complex relations. It's not just because everyone's uptight. You know, you're uptight for a reason. And these are basic reasons that when you look at the human being as an energy transducer that we are and biophysics proves that we are, uh, it makes a lot more sense we're in the
4: paracast with gene steinberg and david Biedney. you never know what's going to happen next just a
0: reminder if you want to get a hold of us here at the paracast send your email to news at theparacast.com that's news at thepowercast.com. We also invite you to visit our online forums. Go to thepowercast.com and click on the links to our message forums. We welcome you aboard. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Dr. Nick Bigich, author of a number of works, including controlling the human mind and the technologies of political control or tools for peak performance. And his website is earthpulse.com and we have a link. To that site over at theparacast.com. So if you forget one, hopefully you won't forget the other. And Ken, before we let you go on, tell us a little bit more about the book. When did it come out? Is this something just available from your site or from the general book resellers?
5: It's just into the book resellers. Ingram, the biggest book distributor in the country, has got it now, and uh, Amazon has it now. So it's, it's out there. It's been out for just 10 days. Oh. I mean, we've just released this title. You know, the most important part of it, I'll tell you, uh, You know, I met uh, Rejo Michaela now um, 28, 29 years ago, and he was one of my uh, mentors in electrophysiology. He got his degree in electrophysiology from the University of Madrid back in 1958, one of the old... The guys that people always reference in mind control is a guy named Jose Delgado, and what people don't necessarily know is he uh, he got his uh, degree in electrophysiology from that same university in nineteen class of nineteen fifty, which you know who the heck knew that such a degree existed in electrophysiology in nineteen fifty. Well, in Spain, Rejo, nonetheless, yeah, yeah. I mean, and Rejo's work in um, in this area, going back to nineteen seventy six, is finally being uh, vindicated. You know, in thirty years later, but when I met him. Uh, it was 1978, and the frustration for me, I mean, I was uh, 20 years old, and I had a good science mind, but to translate the science, I couldn't do it. I mean, it just flat, I just didn't have the knowledge. It took me 28 years to uh, build the knowledge to where I could sufficiently translate what he was trying to say. And that that meant an incredible amount of education. And and, and the thing that came out in Controlling the Human Mind in the very first chapter, chapter one, is a discussion about the mechanism, what we've been talking about pretty much today, of how this really works. And understanding that from either a a standpoint of biology or electronic circuit that kind of bridges that language in plain language so we can go, ah, I get it. Now I understand why this is a relevant area, and then when we lay out 300 source documents to show how this has evolved and been misused, or in some instances, um, fortunately, properly used, the full picture begins to unfold. And the challenge of this technology is, you know, to make sure that it's um, the mail truck is delivering the mail instead of the mail bomb. You know, I mean, it's like you say, technologies are always. Uh, double-edged swords. But now we have technology that can affect our consciousness itself, or what we what goes on within our heads. This has got to have uh, the kind of public discussion that much less uh, invasive technologies uh, have had over the decades. And I think that's our hope on this. I mean, the Washington Post interviewed us recently. They read the material. Uh, they got it in a PDF form. Uh, hopefully, they'll do a credible story because, quite frankly, these are the issues that are going to shape the 21st century, where we're using the whole brain or more of our capacity is what's needed, not the opposite. And, and these technologies offer that potential. You know, Some of the things that we write about uh, take us sort of another level where we can say uh, there's technologies available right now that are accessible to people that can integrate both hemispheres of the brain, creative and analytical, to where they actually, a whole brain effect is created and a much more creative capacity is developed in every single person that uses that type of technology and that's the direction in which educational institutions and other institutions could be going uh, but the important part of all this is who determines the input uh, and these technologies have a great impact in terms of how they lay down uh, memory tracks and how those, that information is assimilated and retained and why you can't just dump anything in and, and these are going to be the technologies that are used in public education, compulsory public education uh, and who's going to decide? What that input looks like That bypasses the conscious mind That part that sorts out right and wrong According to a value system That operates in our conscious mind So these are very important technologies For lots of reasons Uh, But they can be misused so readily and easily with the existing structures of education uh, that we just have as a consequence of the 20th century.
1: Of course, the scenario you're describing almost assumes that there's a desire on the part of the government to create more aware citizens when, in fact, what we seem to see is the opposite. Absolutely.
5: Absolutely, is the opposite, and and yeah. it's the problem with not just government, but think about all the institutions that sub, uh, try to subvert the power of individuals, whether they be universities, governments, religions, uh, scientific communities of certain, a certain, uh, Ill. you know, a lot of people with power have tried to hide from human beings what our real power. Uh, is all about and full functioning human beings are what make my view the way governments should operate. That's what makes government stronger and we have the thing upside down. You're exactly, uh, absolutely right. It is upside down.
1: Right. I mean, the, really the government or most governments seem to be really interested in preserving and growing their power, not really in this term that gets thrown around so loosely, democracy. Um, and not that we have a political show here, but my own perception of what goes on in the educational system is that really what you've got is more and more conformity and essentially the indoctrination and training of uh, subservient consumers and not really people who are going to question the institutions because that creates uh dissonance that creates uh, the kind of situation where, you know, commerce suffers. And clearly it seems like commerce is what drives so much of our world these days, the, the scene with ned Beatty from the movie network has come to be there we are so so the question then is what do we do to try to move our society in a direction where if these technologies are being developed they'll be utilized for positive constructive moving the evolution of humans forward instead of being deployed as more and more stringent methods of control.
5: Well, and I, I think that is the big question, and and it is the one that uh, requires a whole lot of change. And I think ultimately the change begins with you know pu- a little bit of public education on the issue, so we know what the, that what, what we're fighting and debating. But even more important, there needs to be alternative institutions that they can go to that can fund some of the research. And those institutions do exist and are developing all over the planet on a, on a larger scale than perhaps we've seen. You know, there's a conscious sort of investing community growing out there. People are going, wait a minute, how's my money being used? And this is it serving you know, really my long-term interest And forget what the Wall Street quarter-to-quarter interest is? And that kind of change I'm seeing more and more of. And I'm in touch with a lot of people uh, both in the science community and other communities of interest that are looking around the world and saying, you know, that's the problem is a shortage of connecting the right people. Uh, to the right projects. And I think that's that's something that the Internet is changing pretty dramatically. The idea that we can even have this discussion and be able to source the kind of material that we sourced in order to produce uh, uh, the debate. And, you know, the 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 fact is, the debate has always got to be based on the rationale. And today we've got some really interesting possibilities. I mean, in terms of technologies, the corporate interests are really working against uh, all of our interests through their own uh, corrupt means. We're seeing at the national level here in Alaska, we had 20 offices of our legislature uh, raided by the FBI a couple weeks ago for oil corruption, something I've been talking about here in this region for at least a decade. My family's been involved in politics here for over 50 years. My dad is a state senator, at United States congressman. My brother is mayor of the largest city in this region. And you know, the fact is, corruption happens all over. And what we're seeing right now is a big flip uh, in the way in which um, people are perceiving their politics, not just in this country but around the world. And, uh, and and these continual disclosures of abuse. And we've been writing about these abuses before the mainstream. I mean, we wrote about roving wiretaps in 2000 in the book Earth Rising: The Revolution, along with all the other privacy see uh, invasive technologies have been revealed by the mainstream in just the last two years. When you look at Earth Rising 2 and what we said about underwater sonars, what we said about cell phones, what we said about privacy-related technologies in a post-9-11 context and what's come out in the mainstream in the last 12 months or, or has not yet come out, uh, it 's there, and those and the source material is impeccable over thirteen hundred and fifty sources in those three titles alone uh dealing with these technologies and and their misuses it 's a big issue for government and for people within democratic republics and more even more important for sovereign people, whatever form of government they have, is going to be a control of our technologies. Look around the world and the governments are the strongest, are those that hold the highest and best technologies, which means that those of us who believe the government should spring from the people, people need to have a general understanding of those technologies. We don't need to know how to build them. I mean, any more than any of us know how to build an automobile or even fix them these days, but the fact is, we can drive them from place to place so we can, just like driving our automobiles, can drive our governments in the direction in which our technologies go. And what we need is more disclosure and more translation of the science so that we can have that kind of public debate that builds a powerful and empowered government that is truly by and of and for the people. And we've lost that in 200 years. And I think the American people, and I think people around the world are asking themselves how do we get it back? And the very technologies we're talking about not only increase our capacity as people, but also our ability to solve our problems. And these are the big problems that keep us, strict us, from being able to see ourselves actualize our full potentials. Government and education systems don't do it. I was president of Alaska Federation of Teachers for two terms, the Anchorage Council of Education. I organized teachers all over the state. And I'm the only one uh, that has served in a statewide teachers' union position that's, that supports vouchers as a choice for parents to make to make sure that institutions re- reflect real values and real belief systems that real people have and not some neutered sense of neutral values that are never delivered except to create drones in public education systems
6: This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown? Things that go bump in the night? UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at UFO at webtv.net. It's all out of this
4: world. The Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Beedle. You never know what's going to happen next. Just a
0: reminder: if you want to get a hold of us here at the Powercast, send your email to news@thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. We also invite you to visit our online forums. Go to thepowercast.com and click on the links to our message forums. We welcome you aboard. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Dr. Nick Baggett. He's author of Controlling the Human Mind, The Technologies of Political Control, and Tools for Peak Performance, newly released. You can click on the link at his name at the Paracast.com or go to his website EarthPulse.com to find out all the things he's writing about. And I wanted to focus on one other thing here before we go because there's so many topics we can discuss and even the political implications but there's one thing you I see referenced at your site called cell phone protection and so we're in the sea of all the cell phone goo that's around us right now and there are probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of million cell phones kids have them everything else so at this point can we protect ourselves from the problem
5: the safest thing is to start using the speakerphones, the ones that you hold away from the head, that you hold in your hand and you talk to them and they talk back at you. Those are the absolute safe. Because they get the field away from the head. The amount of energy when you place it directly against the head, the way that energy transfers, it's the most intense. And there's a, a, a paper by Dr. Carlo who did the study for the for the industry, actually, that came out and suggested children not use these things because skull thickness in a five-year-old 400% more energy to transfer into the brain than say say, an adult, and a 10-year-old, 200% more energy than an adult because of just skull thickness.
0: Well, what about these wireless headsets, these Bluetooth headsets? Is that another problem because of the Bluetooth?
5: The Bluetooth, I'm not seeing the research, so I cannot comment on that. I can only comment on the um, on the, on the old-style phones because Bluetooth is using a little bit different technology. The thing about anything that transfers heat energy into the head has the potential of slowing down a couple of things, slowing down the repair of DNA so that you get, and what happens happens then is you get tumor formation and you're going to see a lot more CEOs and people that are required or who do use cell phones a lot more and you're seeing it. You know, people are going to have brain tumors in proportions that are unheard of in the next three to five years because that's about how long it'll take for all of this to catch up with the the mechanism that it takes to form. So the Bluetooth, I don't know. My own personal view is Don't put electronic devices uh, unless you know clearly what they do physiologically against your head. Keep them away from your body, and you can still use the technology. You can use the ear jacks, and if you use an ear jack, you know from the regular cell phones, take a small magnetic uh, wire, um, like a a baling wire for that matter, and coil it three or four times around just before that lead goes into the ear. And any electromagnetic field that might be using that lead as a shunt or an antenna to bring bring that energy up, it hits that coil oil that dissipates, and and you're fine. These phones aren't going away. Some of the circuits could be redone, and the industry, since reports started coming out, have filed a number of patents. There are some things that that we found commercially that work to a limited degree, um, but what I tell people is if there's things out there you're looking at that someone says knocks out the energy of cell phones, ask for the patents, not testimonials, and because to get a patent, you have to have, you have to demonstrate it to a patent examiner that science uh, actually is going to work. And so, you know, be careful about that, but these other things don't cost you anything, and are the most effective uh, answers to the problem.
0: Let me ask you something here. Since David and I are probably right now completely destroyed mentally, me especially because I use uh, mobile phone more than he does, and that is, and don't say anything listeners about that, okay? Please. Okay, so can you then and use these cell phones that everybody has and the secret government, the real government, whoever they are who wants to control us, can they use that as a means for mind control also? That you're sitting there talking to your friend on the phone or your spouse or whatever and we hope that they're both friends of course and somebody can play games with your head or send you messages while you're playing with that cell phone and just doing normal things?
5: Yes. Uh, according to the U.S. Army War College's own uh, papers on the subject, uh, the fact is uh, any carrier and, and something is uniquely coded now the thing about cell phones is the way the antennas work now they kind of broadcast over a very large area but there's a uh, if you look at mit 's um, technology review it was published every month, a couple months ago they had a new finish uh, antenna array that would allow you to narrow or narrow that target so the cell phone user were located within one meter. And the reason they want to switch to this antenna style is it allows you to avoid uh, the energy consumption and increase the amount of calls you can carry by up to 300 percent. So that would give you then the ability with that new system coming to target on an individual basis, whereas the sort of the broadband broadcast, uh, whatever signal was going out you know your body would interact with. Now if you were doing something through the phone itself, then that's another matter. You could you could literally piggyback something on someone's phone call and drive it right into their ear.
1: Now we're talking it's about cell phones here, but what about cordless phones that one would use in the house? Do these same sort of the theories
5: apply? Same technology, you You're dealing with the same technology, except they're even worse in the sense that they're not made for battery efficiency. So the power consumption and the power transfer is usually a lot higher because they're always being hung back up on a power charger. And they're working within, uh, you know, within a range. Um, and that range is varying quite a bit depending on how close to the transmitter you are and how many walls are between you and all those kinds of considerations. But really, you're dealing with the same issue. I mean, I, I'm talking today on a hardwired phone with a hardwired cord, so I don't have interference, but this is the phone I generally use just as a practical matter because you don't need the uh, – then I'm just dealing with an acoustic amplifier, just a little speaker rather than a wireless transfer as well.
0: Well, I, obviously, Alexander Graham Bell had a good idea here.
5: He did. He did. And, you know, this is the thing. All these things, once you understand and acknowledge uh, what can happen, you can guard against it because then you, know, you start applying the knowledge towards building the right kind of filters, making sure that you're hitting literally the static green channels so there's no damage being done. I mean, all this um, allows us to use our technologies and use the spectrum. Uh, think about energy this way. I mean, think about everything springs from energy. I mean, if you look at things in an atomic level, you know, the electrons are looking at. the um, uh, protons and it's like us standing on the earth looking at the moon you know there's big distance between most everything is empty space but underneath all that um, are energetic exchanges um, and manipulating energy, even at the at the most fundamental levels, have a profound effect on all living organisms uh, as well as everything else. And so, the more we understand about this, the better, uh, literally, we can replicate in many ways what nature does. That's what man's been doing, you know, since the Stone Age, trying to figure out a better way. Uh, but really, when you think about it, most of these technologies. Uh, spring from that. I mean, the idea of um, communication technologies got us into this whole sort of invisible world of oscillating fields. And and then from that, we started learning all of this stuff. You know, people used to warm up in front of radar stations, for goodness sakes. Now we make ovens out of that principle. <laughs> you know, so, you know, we learned a lot. Uh, we learned it sort of the hard way and in some cases the easy way. But what's happening now is a very clear understanding that as living organisms, we can be affected uh, in many, many different ways, deliberately or accidentally.
0: This is getting to be an interesting and interesting focus, and it creates all sorts of great things, all sorts of conspiracy theories. Isn't it an unfortunate fact about life, though, that scientists, industries will jump into new technologies, but they don't take the time to think of the consequences? They're looking for the fact that you've got to do it bigger, better, faster. You've got to make a profit. The front office says, we need the product out today. I don't care what the health issues are.
5: You know, part of it, is, uh, there, there are those that are that way. But, you know, the most brilliant ones I've met, truly aren't. What, what happens, though, is they over-specialize. And what, what, what happens within the United States, the way we developed all of our really high science, it was done by military through compartmentalization, where they separate everybody so no one talks to each other. So the astrophysicist never talks to the biophysicist who never talks to the volcanologist who never talks to, you know, nobody talks to anybody, so nobody has any clue how these things interrelate. And there are no closed systems. That's what also physics tells us all systems are open exchangers of energy on some level period. And so you know, when when we do this compartmentalization the way the Soviets kept up with us was they did the opposite. They did cross and multidisciplinary teams and they allowed them and their science to stay up with us at a fraction of the money and actually evolved more complete um, and in some cases more complete models of uh, human physiology. In fact they did and much of what's come out of the Soviet Union has been used Uh, both by our military unit and it's being used by civilian sector now. But the best research I see is from a friend of mine who ran the biophysics lab in USSR Academy of Sciences for 10 years before the Soviet Union fell. He stayed with me for six weeks back in the mid-90s. And, you know, what they were doing then was remarkable. But I can tell you that, that none of this has slowed down. Uh, the possibilities, and many of these scientists are saying now, and we're hearing it, is, look, you know, we've got some great possibilities. There's got to be another way. Uh, and there are. And, and I think that's where the excitement, at least for us, is Is we're involved in a couple of projects. We're actually bringing a group of scientists together uh, through the Lay Institute, which is a, another group that I work with. And we're going to bring some of the best scientists, political minds together to launch a counter move uh, against some of these technologies, at least in terms of public education. Thank you uh, and making sure that the message gets out. Seems
1: like an uphill battle.
5: Well, uh, you know, it is and it isn't. Um, you know, we've done some things uh, in the past that have been successful. Uh, you know, we think that we can be, at least have an impact on this debate. We have a sufficient um, uh, committed, number of committed individuals to take it on, and we'll see where we can go with it. And whether you're liberal or conservative, the whole idea of being able to think uh, freely uh, is so foundational. And, you know, I don't care what persuasion, it's a matter of looking at the evidence, considering uh, the character, quite frankly, of the leadership that we have around the world, and that leadership doesn't have the character to refrain from the abuses that it's already engaged in, much less temptation to do worse. These technologies give them the tools to do worse, and we need to we need to end it now. And I think there's a lot more discussion about how that happens now in terms of the political climate. There is change. I think there's change in the wind. We're seeing it in my part of the world. May not happen in this cycle, but when it gets two minutes to midnight, this country is always woken up, and it'll wake up again on the tyranny that we're facing through. You know, a corporate, military, industrial, academic world. And, you know, the thing about the military, I'm very supportive of the U.S. military. And I believe their mission is is to be, in fact, the paranoid thinkers, the conspiratorialists, to figure out every negative thing that could ever happen to us, figure out the scenario to protect us from it. But when it comes to making national policy, they need to stay on the sidelines. And we in the civilian sector make those decisions. And when we go into the clause and say, okay, go stomp somebody, they go take care of the business. fact is, it's not working that way anymore. It's corporations making those decisions for the wrong reason.
0: I've got to make a decision now, which I don't like to make, which is we're out of time. But this is a beginning, Nick, and I hope we'll have you on again in the near future to talk more about this and a lot of the other subjects you deal with over at earthpulse.com. Once again, on the PowerCast, we've been talking to Dr. Nick Begich, author of Controlling the Human Mind, the Technologies of Political Control and Tools for Peak Performance. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the PowerCast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. You know, a while back, I theorized on the show whether I might have been abducted because of those recurring dreams when I was a child. This this huge black thing coming towards me. Of course, I've not been hypnotized. I've always worried about that. Yeah. But we have, of course, Dr. David Jacobs coming on the show. He's worked with Bud Hopkins and he's an abduction researcher who's actually hypnotized people, apparently. And uh, they've been recovering lost memories, presumably. Presumably. And there Mm -hmm. are obviously a lot of questions about that. And with Dr. Jacobs, we're going to try to ask a few of those questions and maybe get some good answers. This should be an interesting segment. Coming next on the Paracast.
3: want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
7: you are about to enter another dimension a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind a journey into a sinister land of secret rites passwords initiations and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the complete dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened. At the signpost up ahead, your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier.
0: Dr. Jacobs, what is the secret alien agenda?
4: well this is uh, this is something of course that uh, that people have wondered about for forever and the question first came up back in the early 1950s you know if UFOs were extraterrestrial why are they here in other words who's in them and what do they want that's the ultimate question my own research has found that this the appearance of these objects signaled a kind of new phase uh, for us here on in on planet Earth if I may speak in those kind of grandiose terms. And these objects contain beings, people, who uh, are here ultimately to, I think, have a program of integration into the society. When we first started thinking about the subject, most people thought about it as a kind of reconnoitering, surveying the landscape, looking over the earth, seeing what was what, that sort of stuff. But they never did actually land on the White House lawn, as were the expectations in the 1950s. They didn't make themselves known. They didn't have a... A, a general sort of uncovering or something. So then they began, people began to think about, well, this is, must be a secret program, and that's probably what we would do too. We would secretly survey the uh, landscape and maybe grab somebody every once in a while and experiment on them. You know, you take somebody, you pull their legs off, you see what's inside, like we would do. And the Barney and Betty Hill case, which was one of the first uh, abduction cases that we heard about, seemed to confirm the idea that they were experimenting, they were studying, there was sort of a learning situation involved with it. Almost everybody in UFO research began to talk about abductions in terms of experiments. They're experimenting on us, etc. That idea never actually held. It was never really in the evidence. We couldn't quite fit it in what we've learned is that this is a program it is not an experiment, it's not a study it's not a learning situation and as a program, it's got a beginning a middle and an end, there's motivation there's goals, it is goal directed and question is what is that all about and from the information that I've been able to gather after 20 years of doing hypnosis with abductees and 41 years in UFO, UFO, UFO and abduction research uh, I've been able to gather the idea that this is an integrated program into the society, not necessarily, and I don't really know this, but not necessarily by gray aliens, but by hybrids that people have been talking about for for many years now. Oh, boy.
1: So we're talking about an integration on the part of these beings into our society?
4: Into our society, that is correct. Now, this is not the gray aliens. You have to remember that. Starting in the early 1980s, my colleague Bud Hopkins discovered he discovered basically the reproductive aspect of it. Although there were hints at this from the very beginning, and men were saying sperm was taken, and women were saying that eggs were taken, and both men and women were shown sort of odd-looking babies that look sort of half human and half alien. From early on, I mean, I remember talking with him about this in 84 or 83 and, uh, and we know that it had been going on before then. This is when he first began to discover this. So we, we do remember it uh, er- early on and over the years absolutely everybody reports this this has become an exceptionally common feature this is not rare it's not unusual it's not a, oh my goodness i got another one it's an absolute rock solid part of the abduction phenomenon and you cannot talk about abductions without talking about the production of these babies well the babies grow up and they become toddlers and they become children and they're young children and older children and teenagers and adults and we have seen them at all these stages and all these levels and this is also an absolutely central part of the abduction phenomenon and not something that's off to the side or something that's bizarre about it. It's part of it. It it is the abduction phenomenon. And we've noticed over the years that the hybrids, as Bud Hopkins called them, or transgenic beings or mixtures or whatever you want to say, have increasingly looked more human. And people have on board the object have had all sorts of things happen to them, and one of the things that happened to them is that they will take them into a room. On the room there'll be like a, a screen, let's just say, and and on the screen there'll be, for example, and I, I wrote this up in the thread. It'll be like a picnic in a park, and they'll look at this scene. And there's people playing ball. There's people at a grill. They're standing around. They're talking this and that. And they'll sort of hear in their mind's ear, so to speak. Can you tell the difference between? Us and you Mm. And the abductee will look at this and say uh, No, everybody looks like to me And they'll say, see, isn't that wonderful Soon we will all be together Soon everybody will be happy Soon it's going to be wonderful Soon, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll Well, the first couple of times I heard something I thought, of course, you, you know, you just blow it off We want to hear from you
3: if you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
0: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have another David with us, Dr. David Jacobs, and he's a researcher, and abduction researcher who, as you know, and as he said, works with Bud Hopkins, and he's author of several books that we're talking about today, one called The Threat, Revealing the Secret Alien Agenda, and another one is a book called UFOs and Abductions, Challenging the Borders of Knowledge, and the first one, The Alien Threat, from what you're telling us, appears to be one of developing these hybrids to mix with us does that mean that they want to take control of us just be part of our civilization to see what's going on what's the purpose of these hybrids
4: well this is a this is the ultimate question the question is why are they doing this why do they want to do this we don't know the answer to that if this were psychological we'd know the answer to that people would just say it because they're saying they're inventing everything else so why wouldn't they invent that you know but in fact we do not know the answer to this and all we can do is theorize and i do theorize uh, i tend to think that this is a fairly uh a negative situation i don't i don't see a whole lot of positive aspects to this here's the deal so to speak from the earliest times on, really even from Barney and Betty Hill in 61, and certainly after that almost usually uh, 100%, not completely, but but with hypnosis it's always a little dicey, and if you control everything, it is 100%. When people say that they communicate with these beings, it's usually done telepathically. Now, if this were psychological, we'd get, they'd, they'd be saying, well, they're talking with a weird accent, and or, or you know, they don't know English, or you know there'd be sort of a wide variety of responses about how you communicate but in fact virtually everyone says well my brain receives an impression and I automatically convert it to words and I know I have to get up on the table. This is universal and it goes across cultures and, and everywhere and all that. Now the problem here is that it's not just telepathy. The person who is abducted is in their control. They can't run, they can't swing their, their fists, they can't, you know, g- uh, grab something and whack somebody over the head with it. They can't do anything like that if they're home they can't reach for the phone and dial 911 they can't run out of the house whatever it is you know they're in control from the instant the abduction event starts now in order to have a person in control from afar there's got to be a neurological manipulation of some sort that causes that without that neurological control there would be no abduction phenomenon it would not happen. The problem here is that that ability to control people is also available in hybrid minds. It's not just the gray aliens, it's the hybrids as well. That they can do and that we cannot do and if they integrate into the society that automatically makes them superior at least in that way to us and therefore we will be inferior at least in that way to them. This would be not good (laughs) Uh, you don't want people who can control you uh, or pacify you or do whatever they want to you you're living Next door to you, for example. Uh, so I take a look at the future of this situation of what people have been telling me and believe me, everything I've told you I have not wanted to hear. This is about the last thing I ever wanted to hear and I hate hearing it. But there's no way that I could escape it, unfortunately. So when I look to the future of this phenomenon, I I don't see a whole lot of good coming out of it, I have to admit.
0: 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We're talking to Dr. David Jacobs on the Paracast, and he's been following the UFO enigma for several decades. He's author of The Threat, Revealing the Secret Alien Agenda, UFOs and Abductions Challenging the Borders of Knowledge. And David Bietney has questions now.
1: I've read uh, the stuff that Bud Hopkins has wrote. It, it's intriguing on one level. Dr. Jacobs, what, what, what I wonder in what you're describing, it sounds like a lot of the conclusions you're, you're reaching are based on essentially uh, studying and analyzing people's experiences through hypnosis.
4: Absolutely. Let right. me just say something about that. This is the problem with abduction research. What you're dealing with here is human memory mm-hmm. retrieved through hypnosis administered by amateurs. Mainly me, or Hopkins, or, or others. You can't get weaker forms of evidence than that kind of anecdotal testimony. It's awful. It's terrible. I mean, I just wish that we could we could have an alien wiggling on the end of a pole. That would be good. But we don't have that. What we have is, is sort of what we have, and we have tremendous amounts of it. And the quality of the testimony, anecdotal though it is, retrieved through hypnosis though it is with, and believe me, hypnosis is problematic. And 90% of the people out there doing hypnosis of abductees are clueless about how to do it. and, And people confabulate in hypnosis all the time. They say things that aren't true and all that stuff. When you control for that, we still have a tremendous amount of this kind of anecdotal evidence that is precise in its details, that dovetails with other people's accounts who are unaware of the accounts that are being said in a way that is just breathtaking. And we have had it for years and years and years, and we do see changes over time that most abductees don't understand is happening, and even though it's at the bottom of the pile of the evidentiary ladder, so to speak, if I can mix metaphors, <laughs> it is still evidence, and there is something indeed going on. It's it's quite compelling once once you begin to understand it, uh, you you begin to uh, to understand that this is not just sort of mythological or folkloric stories that people are telling because they hear it in the media. I wish that were true. If that were true, I could have had a life,
1: guys. (laughs) What I was kind of getting at, Dr. Jacobs, I mean, what I'm wondering about this is that has there been an attempt to cross-reference and correlate the information retrieved during hypnosis of, of abductees with other types of physical manifestations? For example, I'm in the middle of reading a bunch Stanton Friedman's work, uh, talking about the crash of Roswell, the the, the incident of Corona, where it would seem like maybe we do have one of these aliens wiggling around. And I'm not saying that I necessarily accept all of this, but you know, so is there an attempt to create sort of a cross-reference of this stuff, of these bits of clues and evidence?
4: We don't really have that, uh, especially with Roswell. You know, Roswell is has become more controversial as opposed to less controversial as time has gone on. Oh yeah. And um, in other words, the evidence has not developed for Roswell as it should have, which was an increasing amount of confirmatory evidence. In fact, the evidence for Roswell has retreated as more and more of the Roswell people have found to be, let's just say, unreliable and and there have been serious problems with it.
0: I'd like and you to expand on that, too, by the way, Dr. Jacobs. Oh,
4: God, no, I'm not going to do that. As soon as I start talking about Roswell, all I do is make make enemies.
0: <laughs> well, that's okay. We allow that on that show.
4: I make enough enemies in the UFO uh, abduction phenomenon than, than, than to go to, than to wade into the uh, Roswell. I, I'm one of the few researchers who never found the evidence for Roswell to be compelling. Well, that. I'll tell
0: you what. Rather than go into a long message about it, maybe just be brief about it. What aspects of Roswell do you find— As far as evidence, okay, we're talking about evidence. We're not talking about the people, okay? Let's assume everybody or most of the people involved in Roswell are as serious as everybody else, okay, without going into detail. They're as serious as everybody else. What do you find about Roswell that's not compelling?
4: You have to remember that that I've got a tremendous stake in Roswell if Roswell happened uh, it would validate virtually everything that I'm saying and 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 I could have had a regular career in academics and and I could be hoisted on the shoulders of my colleagues as a hero everything that that I say about Roswell you know is, is predicated on the idea that I certainly do hope that Roswell did happen and I hope that the government has a crash saucer and I hope that they have pickled aliens that are or whatever it is, I hope that is true. I, it's my prayer. I just hope that's true. Having said that, uh, the evidence never, for me, developed properly. We got a tremendous amount of people talking about it during the the early time uh, of 1947, uh, but uh, evidence that that we need to know about what's going on with Roswell and that they're bringing all the rest of that stuff today uh, has not been forthcoming. Although there's been tantalizing bits and pieces here and there over the years, but. The- the evidence never quite developed for me, and then uh, the problem with people who were making fairly extravagant claims that turned out to be true, I mean, it, was, it, was, it was sort of a blow to UFO, to abduction researchers, and, and a disappointment to me. But, you know, there's a lot of people who know a lot more about it. Even the Roswell adherents now are, are, are quite fractured and, and, and at each other's throats over things, and, uh, of course, that's the way it is in UFO research in general. hmm there's a whole sort of cottage industry around Roswell, and, and I'm not part of it, so I'd rather just talk about uh, the, the really crazy stuff, which is my abduction world. Oh. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David
2: Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
0: Just a reminder, if you want to get a hold of us here at the PowerCast, send your email to news at the That's news at the We also invite you to visit our online forums. Go to thepowercast.com and click on the links to our message forums. We
1: welcome you aboard. David, well, let's do that, and, and let's talk for a minute about, you brought up a, a word before, Dr. Jacobs, that uh, always interests me, motivation, in trying to understand this entire phenomenon, trying to understand the motivation on our end, on the entity's end, uh, that, I think, would give us a lot of the answers that we're looking for here. So, let's assume for a minute you have these beings that are messing around with our genetics, doing cross, a, a type of hybrid crossbreeding.
4: Yeah, in a sense, yeah.
1: In a sense, right. So, you have human beings who seem, for the most part, to be genetically fairly frail, fairly uh, damaged. You, know, you look at the range of disease we go through on the planet. You look at uh, the incredible proliferation of imperfections in our genetic makeup. And I wonder if, if beings are coming here to essentially borrow some of our DNA and, and work with it, wouldn't that present, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't claim to be a, a scientist, but wouldn't that present more problems than solutions in terms of, you know, look at just the incidents and the different types of cancer that the human beings on this planet have had over the last number of centuries. I almost want to think that, you know, it's almost like if you look at the genetics of a shark, a shark is in many ways a much more robust mechanism physiologically than a human being. What is it about human beings that make them compelling at that point?
4: Well, uh, you know, we have brains, we can think and and, and, and we have civilization and and r- rather than inhabiting a uh, a planet filled with you know with jellyfish, I guess that they that they're going for the for the standard civilization, but you know we really we really don't know. We don't know exactly the mechanisms for how they can combine them with us. In other words, we don't know whether there's an alteration of our DNA or or, or a taking of their DNA in some way and, and adding it to ours, or, or, or we don't exactly know what the, what the neurology, what the physiology, what the biology is uh, how it works. But we do know that uh, we are looking at a at a very advanced uh, group of people by. Depth. Definition. That is to say, if they can get here from there, wherever there is, uh, they do have a technology now, an advanced technology. Now, that, that technology does not necessarily have to be, as I've been learning recently, a technology that is an advance in a linear way of our technology. In right. other words, it can be a different sort of stream of technology, uh, which they have. And I think that's what we're actually looking at. But one thing that they that that is not different, and that when we first began to learn about the subject, that came out of left field, that was just. Off the wall that nobody, absolutely nobody, had expected was the tremendous knowledge they had of human physiology and later neurology. The you know how the brain works that that nobody counted on. That was just so off the wall. It it, it, it took us by surprise. It took us a long time for us to fully understand it. That this is where they are exceptionally able, and it's it's in the area of human physiology because uh, when when people think of, of of advanced beings. You almost always think of hardware, you know, technology and that sort of stuff. But this is different. And so the point is, is that yes, humans are frail, and in fact, we don't see people with massive disorders who are abductees. In other words, now there they may be there. Now I have to be very careful about this because mm-hmm. I've only I have worked with that many people over the past twenty years, only maybe 140, hundred and forty, hundred and fifty. But uh, we don't see people who are abductees who have, let's just say, uh, serious cases of cerebral palsy. We don't work. Uh, we, we haven't seen people who are who are abductees who are blind. We haven't hmm. seen people with other uh, very serious problems. Uh, but we have seen people who do have other uh, issues and problems. We've seen you know, people who've had cancer who are abductees and who have had uh, scleroderma of all things and lupus and things like that, uh, other sort of autoimmune diseases, which, which might actually be a little bit more prevalent in the abductee population than in the non-abductee population, although we don't really know. But we're not that frail, I mean uh, w- w- we've been around for a heck of a long time and uh, we've done a whole lot of things and uh, you know, and, and obviously it's, uh, it, it's compatible uh, with them in some way.
1: Well you know, you, you said something that I found very uh, compelling a moment ago in that if these entities have such a deep understanding of our, of our physiological makeup it, it sort of lends credence to the theory that, and again I, to me all theories are on the table here um, that these beings are possibly coming from our future and, well, I mean, so what do you think about that?
4: There's a built-in paradox on that. You know, I, I teach at Temple University where I. I've been at Temple for well since forever, for 31 years. <laughs> and before that, I taught the University of Nebraska for a while, and before that, I taught the University of Wisconsin for a while. I, I've been teaching a course on UFOs and abductions that uh, since 1977, it's the only regularly scheduled upper-level full credit course on the subject in the United States. And I've been doing that, you know, doing that for a long time. If in fact they come from our future, then there's a certain sort of aspect to it that must be true it must be true that the future has in a strange way already happened because they're coming from the future and the future led to their ultimately having the technology to build a time machine in some way or a machine that can fly here get here from the future now the question then is if you come here and alter the present, will you affect the future? And the answer is, well, probably yes. So the problem then becomes if they fly here from the future and then they are seen and they flit about and they land and they do this and they do that and they abduct people, they are changing the present. But they are changing the present inevitably. To the point where they are setting in motion a series of events which allow them to get into a flying craft of some sort in the future, and then fly here from the future, and then start messing around, abducting people, and flitting about, and then they are changing the present inevitably. To lead to a series of events that allow them to build a flying machine to fly here from the future, flit about, abduct people. It's a loop from which you cannot escape. Oh, that sure is you a can. Paradox.
1: No, absolutely you can. And uh, and this is where, to me, it gets interesting because classically that has been the paradox that keeps this this wall up. But of course. With the advance of physics and with the theoretical research going on in the realm of uh, string theory and the multiverse, it is entirely possible. I'm not saying it's probable, but it's possible that indeed the technology that allows you to travel large distances by definition allows you to travel through time. And if you can do this and if you understand that the mechanisms that allow you to do that give you access to the multiverse, there might be a way to reconcile the differences, the, the, the ripple effect. And again, this is all completely pie in the sky. Of course, the entire topic really is pie in the sky. But what we're starting to learn about physics, Dr. Jacobs, is that there is a possibility that a, a, a civilization or a people that is technologically sophisticated enough to to travel ways that we really don't understand. If you start to bend the the, the nature of space-time and you start to go faster than light, which again, you know, Einsteinian physics says, well, that's not possible. Well, we're not so sure about that at this point. This starts to change the rules of what can and can't happen. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying. That's been the traditional paradox, but with our increasing understanding of the incredible complexity of the physical universe, it seems like perhaps there's an opportunity to explain being able to come to the present, from the future, and not have the kind of, again, the classical situation that you're describing, where the ripple effect changes the future in a hard way that's not controllable. Perhaps it is
4: controllable. It has to be controllable because they are coming from the future. That's the problem. They're coming from our future. Therefore, the future is predetermined no matter how they get here or how they do it it's still predetermined you can't get rid of the predetermination that's the problem but let me put it this way it doesn't matter these beings say they're not from the future they say they're from if you look up in the sky and you look to the look at that star and look to the right and look beyond that, that that's where we're from that's what they say uh, in other words there's never been any indication whatsoever from these beings ever that they're from the future in any kind of controlled study of the of the
7: situation
3: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
0: Just a reminder, if you want to get a hold of us here at the PowerCast, send your email to news at the That's news at the We also invite you to visit our online forums. Go to the and click on the links to our message forums We welcome you aboard. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we've got another David with us, David Jacobs. Dr. Jacobs is a longtime UFO researcher specializing in UFO abductions, and he's author of such volumes as The Threat, Revealing the Secret Alien Agenda, which apparently is hybrids based on our earlier discussion. Also, UFOs and abductions, challenging the borders of knowledge. So let's do a little challenging here. Dr. Jacobs what makes you think that the aliens are telling us the truth
4: well it's not so much what the aliens say and and uh it's, it's it's what the abductees say. Now, the problem here, and you've hit on a very serious problem with hypnosis. In hypnosis, people tend to confabulate, especially in the first, let's just say, two or three sessions. And most abduction researchers only do two or three sessions with people, and so, mm-hmm. so we have a, a, a problem. But when they confabulate, that is to say, when they fill in things and they say things that are not necessarily true, although they're, they think that they're true. And with, of course, the mental alteration that takes place uh, in order to have them abducted in the first place. What you get is a kind of confabulation in specific areas. Number one confabulation in, in the first few sessions is a description of aliens. They're sort of all over the place, and this is why in previous UFO history, my, my first book actually came out in 1975 called The UFO Controversy in America, and, and in doing research for that, uh, you, you get sort of a wide variety of alien descriptions and so forth, and now we understand why, because a lot of this was just sort of straight-out remembered stuff, which is notoriously unreliable or uh, remembering under hypnosis with people who were just didn't know what they were saying or didn't know what they were asking and didn't know enough about the, the phenomenon to understand what the answers meant. But um, description of aliens is number one. Uh, number two is recounting alien dialogue. The problem here is uh, that when you have a telepathic situation and people say they receive an impression on their mind that they then convert to words what is to prevent them from receiving an impression on their mind from their own mind and then converting it to words and telling me that the alien said that, and the answer is absolutely nothing. They do it all the time. And uh, when my second book came out, Secret Life, I did. I, I had a lot of sort of uh, uh, dialogue in there, and in Secret Life, I now realize a lot of that dialogue, I was probably confabulation that I didn't catch because I wasn't quite experienced enough to, to fully, to be as completely skeptical about it as I should have been. So those two areas are, 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 are critical. Now, the key thing here is, of course, for us, now there are other areas too, and they confabulate all over the place in a lot of million different areas. But those are, well, the third big one, if you're want, if you interested in it, is interpretation of alien motivations, goals, and purposes. And uh, so if you ask people, what 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 is this machine being used? for on you. They say, well, let's take a picture of my chest. And the answer is probably not, and they don't know that. And the only way they would know that if they were told that specifically and they weren't. So they're just saying it. So we have to be very, very, very careful with any kind of alien dialogue uh, or interpretation like that. However, the problem here is that there there is a way of separating all this out, and there is a way of understanding what is being said and what is not being said. Uh, In the old days, we used to think that, well, when people remember abduction straight out and can tell you what happened without hypnosis, that's actually better because you don't have the problem of people being hypnotized and all that the answer is it's actually worse the problem here is that people remember bits and pieces of things their memory has been artificially blocked actually probably short term memory has been blocked they can't access the long term memory or the the full events that have happened to them so they remember little bits and pieces they get them wrong they put them in the wrong order and they might remember a little bit about the end and maybe a few seconds of the beginning and they put that together and that becomes a real event written in concrete for them and they will tell me this is what happened to me and they will tell me this story about this abduction event that's very very interesting and I have learned that yes it might be exactly the way that they're telling it to me but I don't know that unless I can get into a controlled situation ask them questions about it that I have learned to ask over the years and more often than not, in fact, almost all the time, those bits and pieces that they remembered are in their story in hypnosis. But they will realize right away, this is not what I what I thought happened to me. This is different, and this is real. For example, a woman's brother died when she was very young, and 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 they were very close. And and her brother died, and. She she remembered seeing her brother appear to her in a room one night at like a deceased relative visitation, you know, and uh, she was actually in a hotel room with her mother. Well, in my particular world, when somebody dies, they don't, they don't normally come back, but that's just me. So we took a look at this in hypnosis, and when she saw her brother, in the, you know, who came into the room, uh, you know, the first thing I asked was, um, you know, what's your brother wearing? Well, it turns out the brother really wasn't uh, wearing anything that she could quite tell. He wasn't really wearing clothes. He sort of looked real thin. I said, "Well, is his hairstyle sort of the same as you remember it?" And he didn't really have any hair. hair. And and then the more she realized what was going on, she just said, "I don't think this is my brother." Uh oh. You know, she was she was heavily heavily invested in this.
0: Remembrance. Let me ask you one question, which is raised by what you're saying. And we've had this suggested to us a lot of times. The skeptics on the abduction scenario say that a lot of what is being remembered during hypnosis is being manipulated by the hypnotist
4: and yeah. we
0: understand. And it. that so, can happen. Okay. And
4: I'm not going to I'm not going to disagree with that. That can happen. Uh, that has happened with uh, with incompetent hypnotists, people don't know what they're doing. But in fact, when people come to me, and I've been doing this for years and years and years now, and I've been, uh, you know, consulting with psychologists and psychiatrists and teaching them how to do hypnosis with abductees and all that for many years. But basically, uh, with incompetent hypnotists and who have an agenda, usually on new age agenda or transformational agenda or a spiritual agenda or a religious agenda or something like Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. you can in fact tease out little elements of what they're saying and have people expand on them through confabulation and that becomes sort of reality to people and so you know that that does happen however used properly that doesn't happen, and especially when the hypnotist is aware where confabulation is and all the rest of that stuff, and there's all sorts of little techniques to use and ways to, to avoid that. Nobody wants to be in, involved with bad data. Nobody wants to be involved with testimony. It's not true. It's the last thing in the world that you want, and everybody understands hypnosis. Most of all, the people who come to see me, they know two things that they have picked up in the media. They know they don't want to be led by me, you know, that they all know leading, which which is not, of course, the major problem, but they all know leading, and they don't want to pick things up in the media and parrot them back to me as if it happened to them. They know those two things, and they're exquisitely aware of them, and so they're wary, basically. But that's not the problem. There's, there's other more subtle problems with incompetency and hypnosis. Uh, so it is a problem, but if you're a debunker, that's what you're going to say, and uh, they're not going to say that there are people who know this. I mean, obviously, we understand this and people who control for it and people who uh, who can tell when people are confabulating and not and people who are very careful not to have an agenda and not to lead people into, into Never Never Land and all that. I mean, obviously, that's something that, that we're quite aware of. If you read the thread, you notice that I mounted a very serious attack on my old friend John Mack, the late John Mack. Uh, had uh, had an agenda, and his agenda was that this was transformational, and this was people were in touch with something that we couldn't in Western science understand, and and it it had to do with his own training and beforehand and all that. And he got really, really off the wall stories that nobody ever got before. It didn't match anything we knew, and it was all a matter of the questions he was asking people and he was calling for certain answers and they were Working together to what I to create what I call a, a kind of mutual uh, fantasy uh, and a mutually confirmatory fa- fantasy. Each one, the, the the subject and the the hypnotist confirmed each other's fantasy that they were creating together. Right.
1: So at that point, uh, they just they had a feedback loop that wasn't really not of much use.
4: That's exactly
1: right.
0: We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine?
6: Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher. And here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special... Five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, nineteen ninety five for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast.
0: So, Bill, how do they place
6: the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one 888 MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295.
0: Bill, give us that contact information again.
6: It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call one eight 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 UFO M A G A, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card.
3: We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
0: Hey, let me tell everybody you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David B. And we're talking to Dr. David Jacobs. And his books include The Threat which is the one that my mind blanked on. They're revealing the secret alien agenda and UFOs and abductions, challenging the borders of knowledge. That's his recent books. He's an abduction researcher. We're talking about the abduction scenario. And I know David Bietney, as opposed to David Jacobs, has a lot of questions to ask. I want to ask only one, and then I'm going to let David run there. And that is Whitley Strieber talked in his books about something called a screen memory, which is a memory that the aliens plant upon our conscious or subconscious about this. So do you believe in that sort of thing? Do you think it's really happening, these screen memories? Does it make it more difficult to find out what's going on?
4: I do believe that that happens, and uh, this was actually first discovered by Bud Hopkins, uh, not by Willie Strieber, of course, and uh, and it was discovered by Bud uh, uh, in the late 70s. But I don't work much with with Bud, but he is. Uh, we have worked together on some projects, and he is uh, my my closest friend in the world, I must say. But screen memories are, are memories where that 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 make no sense. In other words, you come a car. Here, here's one that Bud has talked about, and it's, and it's a wonderful one. You come across a car accident and it's a pile up of cars and uh, you and the person who are in driving you know has to slow down and, and you see these cars just in a horrible shape and they are piled up in the middle of the intersection and it's all lit up and all that and but there's no police there's no ambulance there's no bodies laying on the street there's no other traffic. Uh, the, I mean, nothing makes sense about it, and uh, that would be a screen memory. In fact, that that turned out not to be a pile of cars. It was something else. But uh, and that was an unusual one. More usual is people saying, "Well, you know, I was driving along and an owl flew right into r- right into the windshield of the car and stared directly at me, and for a long time it was the most amazing thing. And I I, I I was stared at by an owl while driving." and the answer is that is extremely unlikely <laughs> or any animal you just name an animal with big eyes looked at them through their window of, the, of their house a cow a raccoon uh, another owl uh, a, whatever it is stared at them and these are these are sort of screen memories uh, and, and, and they're, they're extremely common what is more common however is the first few seconds of abduction and the last few sections of the, of the abduction, three hours in the middle have been forgotten, and you take the first two seconds and the last two sections, you put them together into one whole. For example, I was, at, I was uh, going to bed at night, and uh, suddenly I, I saw there was somebody in the room, and I got real scared, and I grabbed my pillow, and I threw my pillow at them, and, they, and, and that scared them, and they, and they left, which sounds perfectly rational and logical. The problem here is that, and I've actually investigated several cases almost exactly like this, uh, what they're remembering is maybe the first couple of seconds of when somebody was in their room, then they've re- they forgotten the abduction event, they're back in their room again, maybe they're lying in bed, and they come to, the neurological sort of grip on them ha- ends a little too soon before these beings leave, they come to, they see the being standing over the window they throw the pillow and the beings go and their assumption is well they scared them off but in fact they didn't they're just leaving normally and that was that Uh, that's that's actually more common I'll ask people if they've ever had an unwanted or unexpected out-of-body experience now we don't really know the physiology of out-of-body experiences but we know that they happen at certain times they can happen in meditation they can happen uh, if you're on an operating table you know what I mean and you float above and see the surgeons and all that and and there's other ways in which they can happen but we do know that they're not a normal part of human life happening all the time because if that were the case we wouldn't have civilization You wouldn't be able to drive You wouldn't I mean you know what I mean it's just not functional your brain would be it, it, you just it, everything would be screwed up if this it, was just normal part of
0: well, life well I don't want to say that Philadelphia Boston, New York and LA drivers sometimes drive like they're having an out of body experience <laughs>
4: well that's true I, I would put Boston number one yes uh, to, I <laughs> agree
0: with yes. you Boston Philadelphia I like driving through I'll be honest not that because you live in Philadelphia but I have to like driving through Philadelphia
1: well no guys actually like everything else in New York we you all New York everybody drives like they're completely out of their minds
0: because if you're in New York and you want to drive, you have to be out of your mind. Pretty much, yeah.
1: Uh,
4: This I totally agree with.
1: (laughs) But, Dr. Jacobs, I have a question for you. It's okay. um, Yes, sir. We've had a, a guest on the show, a very compelling fellow by the name of Jeff Fritzman, Who, um, in our discussions, he seems extremely credible, very rational and realistic. He has not had to undergo any hypnosis to remember his experiences, which in many cases are are fairly extreme.
4: Okay. Um, Already now, when you say that to me, having yeah. been involved with this as long as as I have been, and knowing the problems of hypnosis and knowing the problems of testimony right. and and thinking about this every day of my life for the past twenty years and writing uh, dealing with it in books and articles, red flags go up all over the place, no matter how absolutely serious and, uh, and and resolved he is about how what he's remembering is, is the absolute truth.
1: So when you say red flags, I mean, the answer, what did I say? That, yeah, go ahead.
4: Well, you said, you know, he's very serious and he hasn't had to have any hypnosis. Remember what happened to him. Now, if he's an abductee, it is possible that he's remembering everything absolutely accurately. And if that were the case, he'd be a first. Let's put it that way.
1: Well, I'm not saying he's an ad, an abductee. He's had oh, okay. he's had a series of direct experiences with with craft that other people have witnessed. He's had a number of shared experiences. Uh huh. Um,
4: That's good. That's good.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. No, his um, the range of his experiences is fairly extreme. Not that you have time, but maybe at some point you want to go back and listen to one of our to our our archived show with Jeff, because I'd love to know what you think about the experiences he tells us about. In that, one of the things that is a recurring theme. I mean, he basically was getting having visitations. Every night for like four or five years. Yeah. Again, very extreme stuff, and
4: uh, yeah. To me, to see that that doesn't bother me. That's we do see that, and uh, and and really, that, yeah. That is that is not something that that would that would worry me, unless unless. will I have to see what he has to say.
1: Yeah. One of the things that, and Jeff and I have, have formed a friendship off the air, and we we've, we've been talking a lot about these topics, and um, in the same way that I threw out to you this notion of these creatures potentially coming from the future. There's something that Jeff and I have been talking about quite a bit, that uh, in reading some of uh, uh, Whitley Strieber's latest writings, he seems to be kind of moving in the same direction. I'm going to throw this out to you for your opinion. This idea, fairly controversial idea, but this idea that perhaps what we're dealing with, and again, we we don't know this, but I'm going to throw it on the table. Perhaps what we're dealing with is an entity that says it's extraterrestrial, but actually... Is extra dimensional and more there 's more and more anecdotal evidence that seems to to some extent to support this notion that what we 're dealing with are and again we don 't know we don 't know any of this all of this at this point involves a certain level of conjecture but and and Jeff has actually had said things said to him by these entities that almost seem to correspond with this theory of these things essentially being interdimensional beings that are very interested in our emotions, more so than our physiology. And I'm just wondering, in, 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 in the research you've done and in the people you've spoken to, the abductees, have you ever heard any mention of an interest in our emotional states? And, and I'm going to qualify this with something. From the stuff that I've read over most of my life, actually I've been fascinated by this topic, and something that, that always seems to hit me about, these gray beings is that from an organizational point of view these appear to be from some kind of a society that would be more of what I would call hive-based versus individual-based. In other words this notion of human individuality is something that is, is not something we'd, we tend to see with these beings. Whereas human beings well, we're all about individuality to a good extent. And perhaps there's something about our emotional states and the incredible amount of energy and, and power that our emotions have that is somehow compelling to these beings, whatever they are. Have you run into anything like this in your research? Yeah,
4: uh, this is an older theory, and, and I have to remember that when Jeff says this is what they told him or indicated to him, remember the confabulation number two area. Recounting alien dialogue, you you know you have to be extremely careful about that. Right, cannot right. overemphasize that. But basically, um, uh, when Hopkins first began to look at the at the situation, when when very few people were looking at it, uh, for his first book uh, called Secret Life, which came out in eighty one, he discovered these uh, the babies and all that. And well, he didn't discover them. He came out and this was in for Intruders, which came out in eighty seven. Actually, his sense was that because uh, uh, men and women had to hold babies and had to hold them closely and had to uh, cuddle them and this and that that the aliens were basically interested in our emotional response to things and 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 they had we had emotions that they didn 't have and and this this intrigued them and so forth. I have never found that i, I, I when I wrote secret life uh, i I said specifically i just i just couldn 't find that, that that yes, I found them holding the babies, but for reason for different reasons then and not because of the emotional aspect of it. But uh, that I don't think that the, that the evidence has held up completely for that. I I don't think that they particularly care one way or the other as long as whatever emotions we have are under control while we're there. Once again, I don't have any stake one way or the other in it. But but I just uh, my own research never quite found that to pan out, although I thought it did and I kind of wanted it to when I sort of said that to a degree in secret life because I was sort of operating under that kind of frame of reference uh, and I thought that they were interested in sexuality and the emotions of sexuality and things like that. Turns out they have no interest in it whatsoever. Hey,
0: I'll tell you what, we're just about out of time, but let me ask you Dr. Jacobs, um, what are you working at for the near term? Any public appearances we could mention?
4: I haven't given them the go-ahead yet, but I'll probably be appearing in San Diego at a conference in early December uh, if I can get my act together and make sure that I do tell them yes and go out there uh, the the other thing is uh, I, I'm now about to submit a proposal for a new book I haven't written a uh, a new book since uh, since the thread. Of course, uh, the other book that you mentioned, um, UFOs and Abductions Challenging the Borders of Knowledge, is actually an edited book with uh, ten uh, sort of heavy-hitting authors on the UFO and abduction phenomenon, and contributing original essays to it, and that was published by an Academic Press. But uh, now I, I want to complete my research into the UFO, into the abduction phenomenon, with my next book, and and basically bring it up, bring the, what's happening with abductions up to date. This will be as far as I can go, basically. And uh, there will be lots and lots and lots of, of uh, sort of surprises in it, and hmm. and things that people have never heard before. And uh it, it will be uh, it'll be a very very interesting book. Don't look for it for another couple of years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was about to say, it sounds great. Okay. A couple of years. Oh, well, oh, I got
4: And uh, you know, it, it takes a year or two to write it, and then it takes a year to publish it, and who knows how long it will take for me to get a publisher for it and all that. I
0: understand. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. David Jacobs, on um, the Paracast.
4: My Thank pleasure. You, Dr.
1: Jacobs. Thank you.
4: In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, you never know what's going to happen next.
1: So, Gene, given that everybody has a microphone and everybody likes to hear their own voice, especially us, of course. But uh, (laughs) we'd like to invite our listeners to send us questions and comments with your own voice. Turn on your microphone, use any audio capture software you've got, record a question or comment for us, email it to news
0: at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if it's a good comment or if it's a good question, we'll put it on the show and you can hear yourself on the Paracast. That's right. This is a way where you can become part of the show. And the only thing we'll ask you to do is send us the files as Windows Media, standard Windows Media or MP3, best MP3 if you can do it. That way Mm -hmm. it can be read by any audio program. And send it to news at thepowercast.com. We hope you keep them to 30 seconds to like a minute and a half. Include your name and let us at least know your name and email address. If you want, we'll restrict it to your first name or we'll call you anonymous if that's what you want. If we call you anonymous, we don't want to confuse you with the person who wrote to Bill Ryan Kerry Cassidy about Project Serpo, so just be careful about that, okay?
1: More or less, that anonymous wants to send us a comment. That would be great. Hey,
0: you're invited, anonymous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely. And we'll let you stay anonymous.
3: Absolutely. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.